one thing that I think is really important is that the first couple minutes of a podcast are incredibly important. Like if you manage to get people past the first couple minutes of your podcast, they'll basically stick with you the whole way through. So when you're scripting a podcast, I think having really, really clear introductions is important. I personally don't think that every podcast can get away with doing a pre-roll. I think that's a personal choice. Podcast Junkies episode 226. Welcome back. If you are new to the show, this is the podcast where I speak to some of the most interesting folks, podcasters and podcast luminaries. And this week is no exception. I have a great conversation with Brenda Salinas Baker. She's the audio content strategist at Google. And we have a great conversation about some of the interesting things happening there. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Henneka Watkins-Porter of the Entrepreneurial You podcast. Make sure you check that out, episode 225. She's an incredibly inspiring podcaster from Jamaica whose stories about meeting Richard Branson are really entertaining. And she talks about how she's been able to build up the entrepreneurial community in Jamaica as well. Hopefully everyone listening is safe and their families are safe. It's been an interesting couple of weeks, depending where you are right now, you're either still in lockdown and thankfully your state has been gradual in the opening, so the new cases aren't as bad. But if you are in one of those states that uh, opened a bit too early, then what we are seeing is that the cases are increasing and it's some crazy times that we're living in. So I just want everyone to be safe. Wear your mask, please. (laughs) It's the smart thing to do, and you're actually protecting others as well. I know it's a crazy point of contention, and just hearing that is going to drive some people crazy, which is uh, wild to imagine. But I look forward to the day when we can all congregate back together at our podcast conferences, at our backyards, and meet up and hug our friends and family. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite, and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. So I mentioned my conversation with Brenda. I was really excited to learn uh, a lot about her history. She's won the Croc Fellowship at NPR in 2012 and has worked at Marketplace and PRI's The World. She helped launch NPR's Latino USA as a full-hour show. And she's also worked as a founding producer of the personalized radio startup 60DB. Currently, she's doing some really exciting work at Google where her team is reimagining the future of radio, and we get into specifics on how that's happening. Naturally, as a podcaster, I ask a lot of questions about what we could be doing as podcasters. She talks about how Google is approaching the podcasting medium. And yes, we have strategies and best practices for discoverability and how to leverage YouTube as a tool for podcasting. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Let's not forget that this episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. Fullcast Fullcast.co is the website. If you need help with any aspect of your show from launch to production and marketing, we can help. Schedule a free chat at Fullcast.co forward slash chat 15 about your existing or new show. I know there's not a lot of traveling happening for conferences right now, but one event that I did want to mention that's coming up, it's in August, so you'll probably hear me mention it a couple more times. It's being put together by good friends of the show and my friend Chris Kermitzos, one of the founders of PodFest. 
They're having the PodFest Global Summit, and it's going to be on August 10th through the 17th for the whole week. They're going to be bringing everyone that they can think of in the podcast industry together under one virtual roof. It's going to be really amazing. Right now, they've got an Indiegogo campaign. I'll provide links to that in the show notes as well. PodFest Global Summit. You can find out more at podfestexpo.com. Don't forget to stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's get into this great conversation with Brenda. Brenda Salinas-Baker, audio content strategist at Google. Thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Thanks for having me. So I want to put a timestamp here. We're in the middle of first or second or 1.5 wave of the It's COVID. all one big wave, I think, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So I, I don't know um, what's going to happen. And, and I think people are, are taking different approaches to it. So uh, it's been an interesting year to say the least. So maybe just to start things off, if you can talk a little bit about, about where home is for you and what's been the impact and, and what the past couple months have been. Yeah, home for me is in Brooklyn, New York, in Clinton Hill. And, you know, after the first couple weeks, things started to settle down for me mentally. Like at first, of course, like everybody, I was very anxious, very worried. I think coming from like an economics background, I was really worried about supply lines. <laughs> that was the thing that all of our anxiety monkeys like cling on to things. And for me, it was like, who's picking up the crops? <laughs> Am I going to be able to get the tea that I like in two months? Like, <laughs> what's going to happen? And like, now that we've been through it and supply lines like haven't really been affected. At the beginning, I remember you would go to the grocery store and half of the things you wanted were just off the shelf. But now it's not like that anymore. Things are starting to feel more closer, you know, a little closer to normal. Um, so since that happened, and you know, I feel like you can't maintain a, an acute sense of anxiety for too long, your body just adapts. Since then, I've sort of have gotten through with the power of my imagination. <laughs> I've been sort of pretending like I'm on an artistic retreat. Really, I'm like, okay, I visualize <laughs> it, it's a cabin, there's yoga, there's like, you know, so I'm like, today at the artistic retreat, we have an African dance class, and then we'll have a master class with Margaret Atwood, and then <laughs> We'll That's have time funny. to write in our journals. And so for me, kind of pretending that I'm on this artistic retreat, you know, when I'm not working has helped me have a sense of momentum in this time creatively. I think it's so easy to sink back into not making anything. And if you're someone like me who likes making things, it you're at risk of losing that momentum. So I feel like, okay, you know, it's been a couple months I can't believe it's June. It's almost going to be July, but I can look back and say, well, you know, I helped my friend with this podcast and I wrote this essay and I wrote these short stories and I filed a piece. And that kind of helps me feel like even though time is going by at this slow pace, like I'll have something to show for it. Another thing that's getting me through is that on my block every night between seven and like seven forty-five, this DJ who lives on my block puts out his equipment <laughs> and like does a set and we have this socially distanced wow. dance party like 200 people we're all in mass and like six feet apart and everyone's just like dancing and at the end he does That's affirmations so cool. and we all have to yell i am worth it <laughs> wow so i feel That's like really finding cool. those little pockets of joy is how we build up our resiliency so we can hold on 
That's that's really nice to hear. So home right now for me is Minneapolis, but I grew up just outside New York City in Yonkers, and I've lived in in Greenpoint. I've lived in East Village and Lower East Side, and so you know, understanding the special circumstances about life in New York City pre-COVID, and then just you know having conversations with friends that still live there, and just it's been interesting to see how the city is adjusting. And then when you factor in everything that's happened, you know, post George Floyd and, and, and then all that unrest that's happened, there's a lot going on. And, and I think the way my partner described it is uh, adrenal fatigue, you know, just you're, you feel like you're always on edge, like what's going to happen this week? It's, it's just, you don't know. And, you know, we're only halfway through the year. So I think, I, I think just you f- sort of feel it almost like across the country, COVID was worldwide and then the unrest was with the country and it just feels like this sense of like not knowing what's coming next. So I think to your point, having routines and, and having things we can settle into that, that give us that sense of peace are, are very helpful during these times. I saw the most amazing thing the other day. There was a protest that went by my house and everyone was on bikes. So they were all wearing, my, they were all wearing their masks. They were on bikes. So they were like maintaining social distance. And it went on for miles and miles and miles it was thousands and thousands and thousands of people and it it just really it the impact that it had on me it really made me think about the power of imagination in creating this new world everybody says like now that coronavirus hit like the world that we had pre-covid isn't coming back yeah in many ways like it shouldn't come back there were things about that world that were very wrong and so the fact that we're applying our imagination to create a new world post-covid gives me a lot of hope even though it is it is an emotionally trying time, I assume that anyone that I'm talking to is operating at 50% capacity. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So let, let's uh, wind the clock back a bit. We'll get into what you're doing in your current role, but talk a little bit about some of the things you were studying in college and, and, and how some of that may have actually prepared you for you know where you ended up today. Yeah. So the only thing I've ever wanted to do is tell stories and to tell stories on the radio. I started listening to, well, actually when I was a little girl in Mexico, I had a lot of books and radio programs for kids on tape. I was the, I'm the youngest of three. So my parents needed ways to keep me occupied without driving them insane. So I had this little like tape recorder that also had a microphone, my first little kit. (laughs) And I would listen to the same radio dramas for children in Spanish over and over. And my mom would record herself reading books to me and they would be on my tape. And I had these little stickers, like a sticker (laughs) in the book that would match the sticker on the tape. Like, I think she, I think somebody told her that it was like really good to read with your children. And she was like, I don't, I don't have time for that, but (laughs) So for me, like the, and, and she's such a wonderful storyteller. My aunts say chisme, which means gossip, which is like very compelling third person narratives. <laughs> yeah. So I've always had a love for storytelling. And I started listening to NPR, you know, before podcasts were really a thing. And when I started hearing voices like Lulu Garcia Navarro, like Marina Josa, voices that sounded like mine, it really made me feel like, oh, maybe I can do this. Like I have stories that I want to tell and maybe I can do this on the radio. I went to Columbia and I studied economics because honestly, I wanted to study comparative literature, but my parents convinced me that 
economics was a practical thing to do. And I do love economics. I love business yeah. stories. And I thought, oh, well, I'll be a business reporter. I loved mm. the NPR business desk. So it seemed like a good fit. And when the financial crisis hit, it was hard. It was hard for everybody. That was my freshman year. And some of my colleagues were able to stay in New York and take on like very sexy internships. I definitely was not able to do that. Financially, does not cover the summer. So I went back to Houston and I interned at Houston Public Media, my local radio station. And everybody there was so kind to me. I would just beg the reporters to let me carry their kits so I could go with them on assignment. And I learned so much doing that. I got to file a couple of my own stories. And my junior year, a couple of my friends and I decided to start a newsletter, like a newspaper in Spanish at Columbia University. So we noticed that the university was really good at translating positive material, right? So when there was like a job fair or scholarships or some sort of award, they would translate that press release into Spanish in a day. But when someone died on a job site where there were labor disputes, the things that they didn't want to put in Spanish, they wouldn't put in Spanish. And a couple of my friends, like Columbia has a real history of student-led activism. And we thought like, if we don't translate and circulate this information, no one's going to get it. And the majority of staff at Columbia, their first language is Spanish. So we would use, you know, we got we got like a $400 a year grant from the <laughs> Center for American Progress. It was like nothing. It was like just <laughs> enough to cover our printing costs. Yeah. And we would translate articles and sometimes press releases, but mostly articles. We did a little bit of original reporting. We had like a poetry section and we would print out, (laughs) we would, you know, at the school library, we'd printed out these newsletters and we would hand them out to people who worked on campus. And so I kind of got the journalism bug then too, in, in terms of like being an editor and feeling like I could really have an impact in my community thinking like, well, if I don't, if I don't do this, who else is going to do this? And they're still doing that project at Columbia, which I think is very cool. Yeah. Well, that's nice that they kept it going. They kept it going. So when I was interning at my local public radio station that summer, the general manager there knew that I had done this paper and he appreciated the work that I was doing and the passion that I had for radio. And he told me about this fellowship at NPR called the Croc Fellowship. And basically it's for emerging journalists. They pick three people a year and you get really intense hands-on training in all aspects of public radio from reporting to producing. So producing is more like behind the scenes to writing digital stories to working at a local station. So I applied and I was one of the three people selected, which was a huge deal. And so I got this really great public radio training in Washington, D.C., And then after that year was over, I went to an NPR show in New York called Latino USA. Mm -hmm. It's a show distributed on NPR. And then after that, I went to KUT in Austin to help found a statewide radio show, which was a new thing. So most radio shows are either nationally syndicated or they're local. And this was a regional show, which was really exciting. So being from Texas, it was an exciting opportunity but that show, it was such a grind. It was, I don't know if you've ever done daily, daily radio. <laughs> a lot of work. So like, no matter what happens, the sky could fall and you still have 15 minutes to fill. 
yeah. on that radio show, right? Like you can't, you can't say I'm not publishing today because you have that airtime. So what were some of the things that, you know, and, and I, I think if you think about the parallels in podcasting, the people who do daily podcasts, for example, or news podcasts. So going through that process of having to, to fill that space on a daily basis, what were some of the, the, the skills you picked up? Yeah, how to vamp on live radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's why radio hosts get paid so much money, like to be able to talk about nothing when your yeah, script yeah. is down, but still make it sound entertaining. Like that is a real skill. So one of the exciting things about that show, the challenge was that it, we played it right after morning edition. So our listeners, most of them would hear the national news for an hour and then it came to us. So any story that was like national, it already been done. They've already heard it. So we had to figure out like, how do we do this from an angle that's Texas or how do we take a, a story mm -hmm that's in a city in Texas and make it regional. So really focusing on the lens. And that's something that I talk to podcasters about all the time. So in the Google Podcast Creators Program, which is a program that we do with PRX and we actually are opening applications in July. So I really hope that your okay. listeners who have podcasts apply because we wanna see their applications. Yeah. One of the things that we ask is who is your audience? And sometimes when you ask a podcaster that they say, Oh, everybody. Ugh, that's not an answer. <laughs> you really do have to have a specific audience member in mind. And it's not that you're not going to reach other people, but you really have to think, who is this for? Because if you're making content for everybody, you're making content for nobody these days. That's true. So I really learned that in, in Texas. And that Latino USA too, I would say. There's a little bit of a, a thread there, and I'm Latino as well. I, I was born in El Salvador, actually, I, I, and, I, and I came here when I was, uh, to New York when I was about a year old. But uh, so I, I'm always interested in people who were raised here in the U.S. and how much of that culture makes its way into you know what we do day to day basis. And I'm wondering if that was something that your parents instilled in you, or it's something that you felt being a Latina, you know, I know that you worked in, in a couple of different organizations and, and in like, even at Columbia with the Latin American organization. So I'm, I'm just curious, like how, if you could describe a little bit how that's important or why that's important to you. Yeah, I think I grew up in a family, like many other people from Latin America were oral storytelling. No one would ever call it oral storytelling, but that's what it is. And it's a very strong tradition. So I remember being a little girl I'm sure you have memories like this too. Like we would meet our family members for lunch and it wasn't just lunch. <laughs> it was lunch and then like coffee and yeah. then dessert <laughs> and then a little break and then it was dinner. So you would be expected as a child to be seated at that dinner table all day, like <laughs> six hours. Um, now, nowadays, like Mexican restaurants will have, you know, like play areas and clowns yeah. and people who paint your faces. But when I was a kid, that was, you were expected to stay at that table. <laughs> and for me, I always loved hearing people speak. I love hearing my mom speak. I remember being a little girl and I would put my ear on her belly while she talked. Like I liked hearing how the voice sounded from oh, inside of her. <laughs> Because when you do that, you know, someone's voice sounds like it sounds like to them. Yeah. And my mom, like, she is such a good reporter, but she would never call herself that. Like, she's the type of person, I'll, we'll be at an airport terminal and I'll leave to go get a magazine or go to the bathroom or something. And I come back and she knows the life story of every other person at that terminal. And sometimes it's because she asks them. Other times it's because she's just really good at eavesdropping. Okay. <laughs> 
maybe a little sprinkling of invention. You know what I mean? <laughs> so she's such a wonderful storyteller in ways that are natural to her and not studied. So even, you know, as a radio producer, I will listen to everything that people make. Like I'm listening to radio all the time. Mm hmm. But when people ask me, like, who is your storyteller inspiration, I would say my mom and my aunts, because they have such a natural way of telling a story. Something that they do is, and this is like starting to come up in radio a little bit, it's kind of experimental, but like, yeah. she'll start telling you a story and she tells you like 10 stories on the way to get to that last story. And for me, I'm just like, buckle in, like, this is, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we're going to end up, but like, it's a really exciting ride. So yeah, I talk to my mom like every day, if not a, you know, every other day, if not every day. And if you ask me like, what do you talk about? Like, I have no idea what we talk about. <laughs> we just, we just talk. <laughs> well, it seems like that trait that has served you well, that having that ability to, to be interested in other people's stories in being able to start a conversation with people to get their story out of them and and just and, and I think in the work you do and, and if you think about some of the the best podcasts are, are those where you feel like you're pulled into a story or I like to tell people sometimes when um, I, there's a podcast interview there's the ho there's three people in the conversation there's the host there's the guest then there's the person listening as well and just always making sure that the conversation is inclusive to, to the listener, you know, there's one listener at a time listening to the podcast. So it seems like your, your background, your, your, your family life, like sort of all roads led to <laughs> what, what it is you're doing now. Yeah, I think there's a real culture of actually being curious in other people's story to the point that like maybe we're a bit nosy in ways that people that grew up more in a, well, we'll say like a waspy tradition, maybe feel like, oh, it's rude to ask that question. Yeah. And in Latin America and Mexico, like you just, you just ask the question. Speak, and you speak your mind. <laughs> and you speak your mind, right? And you deal with the consequences later. So uh, can you, uh, so continuing through the, you know, the, the jobs that you had, you were already a producer at Latino USA, and then you were a producer also at, at KUT. And then can you talk a little bit about, you know, those jobs and how that led to working with the startup uh, 60DB? Yeah. So at NPR, things are starting to change, but it used to be that you were either a reporter or you were a producer. Reporters are reporting the story, their voices on the air, but they're not making the mix. They're just filing the separate elements. They're not... Mm creating segments where the host interviews and then producers are behind the scenes. They're doing that work, but they don't really get to be on the air. And I really like doing both. Like I really like looking at a story and deciding, letting the story dictate the treatment because sometimes there's a story where I feel like, yes, my voice should be in it, but other times my voice shouldn't be in that story. And so I always wanted to do both reporting and producing. And that kind of limited me earlier in my career because there's not a lot of places that let you do both. Latino USA let me do both and KUT let me do both. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting, making that decision about when to include or not include your voice in the story. Can you talk through that thought process? I'm, I'm curious as to you know what your what your criteria is for making that call. Yeah. So for example, like let's pretend I'm doing the story about the block party on my street, which I think would be a delightful story. Maybe I'll do it. <laughs> 
that story, like I am benefiting from that block party, right? Like it is adding something meaningful to my life, but at the same time, like it's kind of not about me, right? It's about whose voices do you want to hear? You want to hear the voice of the DJ who said like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do a block party every day until this virus is over. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I were to put myself in that story, I would make it about me. And the story sort of like, isn't about me. So I would prefer to produce it as a postcard or, you know, if it was on a radio show, I'm not the host of the show. So it's like, why am I introducing a new voice? You really have to think about the listener and what's the best treatment for each story. And sometimes that means being in front of the story. And sometimes it means giving it your own special sauce, but that doesn't necessarily mean your voice. And when I talk to emerging radio producers, I tell them like, what are the things that make me know that that story is your story? Even if I don't hear your voice, like what is your style? And you really have to think about that in audio because it's interesting. You can tell so many stories without your own voice. And I think, um, so one of the things I do is I'm a mentor for NPR's next generation project which is for college students who are interested in breaking into radio. And we used to have them report a piece, but we realized that it was actually more of a challenge and more of a beneficial challenge to have them create a postcard. So create a story where their voice wasn't in it. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's a really good exercise, even for people who are used to being, having their voice on the air. I would definitely challenge you to make a piece of audio where your voice wasn't in it just so you can see what your style is. It's so interesting. And it's something I think for anyone that's a podcast host who's always looking to improve. I think sometimes, you know, for people that do interview-based shows, they're thinking, well, how can I continue to improve my interview skills? Because I'm always going to be on the podcast and I'm always going to have this interaction, this back and forth with my guest. And then, you know, how can I get the best out of my guest? And and still, but to your point, uh, that that assumes that we're always going to be in the conversation. And I think working out that other storytelling muscle would be beneficial. And, and doing an exercise like that, I think creating that postcard. Are there some just bullet points in some of the guidance you give these students and how to go about creating that piece of audio and some things they should be thinking about just at a high level? Yeah, so you usually are interviewing somebody when you do this type of work but you take your own voice out. So you have to ask the person to tell the story from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you usually have to get them to tell you the same story a couple times in a couple of different ways. And they have to say, you know, they can't answer your question. They have to include the question. The question, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have done that. Yeah. One of the things I like to do is I like to listen to the NPR archives when NPR started, like those kids were weird little hippies that didn't belong <laughs> anywhere. Like these voices that now they're these esteemed professionals, Robert Krolwich and Susan Stamberg, like they were just kids. Like they were younger than us and they were trying to make something and they experimented a lot. They did a lot of weird stuff. And I feel like NPR has kind of lost some of that funk as it's gotten more and more professional. And it's interesting to listen to that more experimental stuff. Also, the Third Coast Audio Conference has on their website, they have the winners of their 
awards ceremony every single year. And some of that stuff like is really strange and really wonderful ways that can really spark your imagination. I think you can do so much with audio that you don't even know. Like recently I was listening to, I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I don't know if you are. Uh, the movies, um, not the, the, movies. <laughs> I read okay. the, not the books. I haven't read the books. So I listened to the BBC adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. And so this was in the seventies when they were, you know, they were cutting tape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, it's voice acting and texture. And it's like, obviously, you know, they're by a waterfall and it's the sound of like a pitcher, you know, you don't know what it, <laughs> what it is, but like, yeah. it really transports your imagination in ways that are really simple. They're not technically difficult, but it just takes really good writing and really smart sound design. And you're completely transported because I always tell people like radio is a visual medium. It's just at the vision the the screen is in your own head right yeah they call theater theater of the mind yeah theater of the mind absolutely so yeah that's fascinating and i think it's something just to anyone listening thinking about different ways about to how to improve their skills as a podcaster just to think about these exercises to work these creative muscles and you know think about different ways of telling stories and i think it's something that i'm, I'm going to take on as a project for a, a future in this there's always stories if you, if you you just have to pay attention like every day there's literally like a dozen stories that you come across well, when I was a freelancer, my goal was when I go out on a story, I need to come back with two other story ideas. So you always have to keep that antenna yeah. up. And I think like some of the most creative people in any medium, what they're really good at is remixing things from different genres that no one has remixed before. So if you think of Lin-Manuel Miranda, he was taking hip hop and musical theater. Yep. And so it's not that he, he's this creator that just came up with something out of nothing it's that he was able to mix different elements so i think no matter what your medium is the more you follow your passions and your interests even when they're pulling you in opposite directions the more creative you can be oh that's very good very good can you talk a little bit about what it was like or and what type of work you were doing at 60 db just because i'm always interested as an entrepreneur what it's like to go from some an organization like an npr or a radio station and then how you you got that job and and what those what those early days were like it was very unexpected it's kind of a lesson in saying yes and seeing where it goes so i left kut because I was a producer. The grind was so intense that I never left the studio. Like I left the studio to have dinner and to eat. <laughs> and my beat was tech and business. And I was so busy on the show that I didn't even get to go to South by Southwest. Wow. Where I would have gotten like a hundred different story ideas, but it, it was just like the pressure was just too much. So I decided, oh, and also, uh, yeah, just being in the studio can be kind of a bummer when you want to be out and about interviewing people in their element. Um, so once the show was pretty much settled and we had launched it, I decided to be a freelance reporter, which I definitely recommend. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money in it, but I learned so much. <laughs> and it really made me f have a lot of confidence in my own ability to tell a story, but also market myself. So I was working as a freelancer and I was doing really well. I had stories on NPR and you know, marketplace uh, a couple times a month. 
And one of my mentors, one of my editors who I had met at a training for tech reporters for Planet Money, which is an NPR show, his name is Steve Henn. He called me and he said, hey, I don't know if you've heard, I have this app called 60DB. It's a personalized radio app. It's basically like every user gets their own radio magazine. I thought that was really cool as someone who was a producer. And he said, oh, the the Democratic National Convention is coming up. I need someone to help me put original content on the app. Will you come to California for three weeks and just like file one or two stories a day so we can experiment? And I was like, as a freelancer, I was like a steady gig for three weeks. That's <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you'll pay for my ticket to yeah, California. Yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely. So I, I did that for three weeks. And at the end, it turns out that it was a job interview which is apparently how they do it in tech. It's not how they do it in radio. So I accepted the job because I really liked working with Steve and it was really exciting to be part of a startup. I loved reporting on tech. So getting to like be in the tech scene with this new product was really exciting. At 60DB, I was reporting stories, but mostly what I was doing is I was helping print publications bring their print stories to audio life. So we worked with the New York Times before they launched The Daily, we, were, we worked with Vox before they started doing Today Explained. Yeah. And that's what we were doing. We were you know, saying, okay, give us a reporter for 15 minutes. We'll interview them. And then we'll create like a five-minute news package, news magazine package. That's NPR quality around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really, really great. We did that for two years, one year and a half. We did that for a year and a half. And then the company got acquired by Google. Ooh, and then I had a choice <laughs> to make because I knew that at Google, we had the opportunity to make this product that could really revolutionize this industry, like really make a product that people who didn't even listen to radio could listen to. Yeah. But I wasn't going to be able to make content anymore. It was a big change. One of the things I told myself is like, well, you know, if I got promoted to be an editor, I probably wouldn't be making content either. This is kind of like natural in the life cycle of a reporter producer. It's been really interesting being at Google. Um, I do still make radio. Obviously, that's not my job, but I do try to make, you know, a few pieces of radio a year. I help my friends with their podcasts. Like I try to stay engaged. But at Google, mostly what I do is content strategy, which means that I'm the person that looks after all the content on our platforms. <laughs> and I help design special content experiences for our users. And I also um, give publishers sort of best practices of how they can use the data that they get from Google to tell more and more engaging stories. And that's something that I learned at 60DB. We had this interface where after a story had been published for 24 hours, we had second-by-second second analytics of how that story performed on the platform. So I could see, like, if I didn't have a good introduction, people would skip the story. And so I could see yeah. with date all the things that I needed to work on. And that really helped me as a producer. And that's something that I'm teaching publishers how to do now. Because the analytics platform that we have, it's called Google Podcast Manager. It's very similar to what we had at 60DB. So can you talk a little bit about anything you had to do personally because being a storyteller being a reporter you're using different muscles right creative muscles to, to on, on, a, on a regular basis what's something you had to learn or you know new skills you had to acquire as you started to you know 
flesh out what, what was going to be or what has now become your, your current role at Google? I'd learned so many things. <laughs> so some of my skills did apply. So for example, my skills as an investigative reporter, when I first got to Google, like Google is such a big company, it's really hard to know what's going on. So I definitely had to use those investigative skills to find out the oral history of things that have been tried in the past and why they didn't work and why this person is in charge and why not this other person. So I really had to create like an oral history of what had come before us. I did that with one of my colleagues. Her mm -hmm. name is Hannah McBride, who's an awesome producer. And we were really able to help our team get a leg up because we did this sort of like in investigative work. What I didn't understand was I didn't really have the boardroom skills. I didn't have the corporate skills. I didn't know yeah. what things meant. And actually, it's funny that you, we, before we were talking about Wondery and Hernan Lopez, and one of the shows that really helped me was the show Safe for Work. It used to be called I Hate My Boss or something. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like a real manual of how to behave in a corporate environment. And like, I learned so much from that show. I like binge listened to all of it in two weeks and it gave me a lot of skills. Like, oh, what do people mean when they say visibility? And like, why are we always <laughs> leveraging things? <laughs> jargon, jargon, corporate jargon. The jargon, but like that corporate jargon, it does fill a purpose because it helps people feel like they're speaking the same language and feel like they're being a part of a team. So one of the things that I did at Google, nobody knew who I was at Google and no one had really done what I was trying to do in the space. And it was very hard for me to every time I met someone to communicate what I do. So what I did is I started this little project where every Friday I would send a podcast recommendation to people in the company. So it was, I call it an involuntary newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great title. Um, yeah. So I would say Friday podcast recommendation. This week I want to recommend this for this and such reason. And you should like listen to this episode. I hope you really like it. And I started doing it like a year and a half ago. I'm, I'm still doing it. Yeah. And people started realizing like, oh, she she's a radio producer. She knows content. She makes content recommendations. And people who I hadn't worked with before, people who didn't know me, started asking me for my help on different content-related projects. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were like, oh, we're doing this content experience. Brenda, what do you think? And I was like, actually, let me tell you what I think. <laughs> That's good. So doing something like that, like it only takes me 15 minutes a week to do, but it's a way of me showing like this is what I can do. And it really helped me get better, better assignments. So, and that's something that I learned directly from safer work. Like don't wait to get an opportunity, find little ways to communicate your value and then say yes to the things that come. And now I'm at the point where I'm, I need to say no to some things because so many requests come in and that's a really cool place to be. Can you talk a little bit about what the trajectory has been like at Google in terms of how they think about podcasts, how they think about the future of it, because naturally, you know, everyone talks about what Apple has done for the ecosystem and obviously having the ability to, to natively on the app, you know, there's these inflection points where it was clear, like there was, you know, continued resurgence and in interest in podcasting and, and Apple has helped a lot with that. And then obviously you do have the Apple podcast manager, which I, I think, you know, initially people were, 
were excited because now they had a, a bigger picture of what was happening within that iOS ecosystem. And I imagine that some of what's happening with with what you're doing at Google, also getting that that in-depth information, something, you know, some of the stuff you alluded to at working at 60DB, like having the anal- analytics. So can you talk a little bit about how, to the extent that you, you can, like what how, how Google is looking at the, the podcast picture and, and how, what type of role they're, they're looking to play for, for podcasters? That's a great question. So with every company, you have to think about what is their mission statement and then sort of piece together what does that mean in the audio space? So I'll let you and your listeners do that work for the other companies, but I can spell it out for you at Google. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it useful. And that is why Google cares so much about the open web and the RSS ecosystem in podcasting. So you and your listeners probably know what an RSS feed looks like. It's this piece of code that's like yeah. not meant for human <laughs> consumption, right? It's the back end of how podcasts get distributed and it has like the publisher name and these little carrots and meta tags. And that's it's, it's the amp- screen they're looking at in the matrix. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And in that screen between two little carrots is an MP3 file. And that is the audio that gets distributed. And the platforms where you pay, where you play a podcast some of them are called podcatchers. Google Podcast is a podcatcher, which means it crawls all the RSS feeds on the internet that aren't blocked, and it surfaces them on the app. So you don't have to submit your podcast to be on Google Podcasts. It already is on Google Podcasts. You can claim it so you have the analytics, but it's already there. So it used to be back in the day that... Google had no way of knowing what was being said in that MP3 file. It was virtually a black box. So that's why the use of meta tags was so important. It was, is this comedy? Is this a spiritual podcast? Is this Mm. true crime? Like those, that's where the meta tags came in. Because of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's possible for a company with the computing power that Google has to use automatic transcriptions to figure out what is in those MP3 files. So let me back up. For every MP3 file on the internet that's available for crawling, Google on the back end makes a transcript. And it's not it's not a transcript for people to read. It's like 80% accurate, but it's accurate enough that Google can figure out what's being said and then can index it the way that Google News indexes text on the internet. So basically Google is making like a dummy web page for every MP3. And then it can actually find information about that MP3 file and index it, organize it and understand it. And that is why Google cares so much about audio. It's this new medium that's very old, but it's this place where there's so much useful information that a couple years ago, it was completely untapped. We couldn't tap into it at all. But now because of automatic transcripts, we are able to tap into that knowledge. So I'll give you an example because it's the same thing that powers YouTube. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been able to or what the company has been able to discover that, you know, early findings? I know that still it's something that's probably like, you know, developing even as we as we speak. But as a result of some of that early analysis of of these audio files, like what you're finding. So this is the same technology that powers YouTube in search. 
So the other day I wanted to make a pretty pie and I was looking up how to latisse a pie, you know, like that pretty little square thing that you make on a pie. Oh yeah. yeah Obviously yeah. I know all about it. So I Googled <laughs> like, how do you latisse a pie? And Google search took me immediately to a YouTube video, but knew exactly at what point in the video the woman who was making the pie started explaining how to latisse a pie. So it was a 10 minute video, but it told me start watching at 3:23, And that is the power of a transcript. Google is taking that transcript and saying, this is the information that you need. Um, so it really helps in terms of discovering useful information to have that automatic transcript. And it happens almost instantly. But as far as early findings. <laughs> People love podcasts. We have more and more podcast users every day. It really, it takes one good podcast for people to kind of like get it. So I'm a huge podcast evangelist. I know you are too. So I ask people all the time, like, what do you listen to? And so many people still say the radio or just music. Like there's so many people for us, like we talk about podcasts, right? For us, we talk about podcasts all the time, but really like there's so many people who have not even heard of a podcast. And also there's so many people who have great stories to tell who don't have their own podcasts yet. And that's why it's really exciting to be a part of the Google Podcast Creators Program. We're saying to those people, you, yes, you, like you have a story to tell, let us help you. Part of the guidance early on, and, and you know, depending who you ask, you know, there's always people that help you in terms of starting a podcast and giving you tips for discoverability. That's you know, every podcaster that's getting started, you know, they want to know like what's the best way, what's what's the secret sauce, like how do I make my podcast found, and you know, with the, with the threshold of uh, we've crossed the million podcast threshold in, in Apple, and so everyone's using that as a marker to say, wow, there's a, a lot of noise out there, and so what can I do to dif either differentiate myself or make sure that I'm doing everything possible to have my podcast be found. So I know there's podcasters and I've played with this a, a little bit as well is just having the audio on YouTube because, you know, the argument was that YouTube is the number two search engine. So, you know, you want to be in, in Google's ecosystem and you want to make sure that, you know, even just from an audio perspective, and if you're doing a bit of, you know, at, at the time it was just making sure you're fleshing out like your description, that that would be helpful. So is some of the work that you're doing now with on, on the Google podcast manager platform is that going to obviate the need to to do that on youtube or is it still a recommendation that maybe just to, to leverage them both as much as possible i think you should leverage both something that we have seen in the research with youtube is that young people specifically people under 25 will put on youtube and then either walk away from their computer or look at another screen so like they're not watching YouTube, they're listening yeah, yeah, to YouTube. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of podcasters feel like, well, I don't know video. Like, ooh, I'm thinking like maybe you don't need to have amazing video to be on YouTube because people aren't watching it frame by frame the way that you think. So yeah, I think YouTube is still a great way. Do you need to put every single episode on YouTube? I don't know. That's your that's your call. But I do think you should be experimenting with YouTube because it's a nice way to reach an audience. As far as discoverability, now when you Google the name of a podcast in Google search, there's an embedded player. Yeah. So people who don't even know what a podcast is, if they see the name, if they know the name of your podcast, they can directly play from it in search. So one of the cool things about Google Podcasts is that as a user, you don't need to have a specific Google Podcasts account. If you have a Google account, you have a Google Podcasts account. So 
the player knows that you started a podcast on the web player and then you go to your phone and it knows and then it, you go to your Google Home speaker and it knows exactly where you left off. So everything is seamless and we hope that eliminating that friction really does help with discoverability and helping to engage those listeners. Are you getting early uh, feedback from folks that are using the tool now and, and some of the insights they're getting from, from their podcast that they otherwise didn't have before? Yeah, we are getting insights. One of the most amazing things that I found is like, I assume that everybody skipped podcast ads. That's actually not true. Most, the majority of your listeners are listening to your ads, which is great. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> it's great to hear. There's definitely like a dip, but it's not the dip that you would think. And what, one thing that I think is really important is that the first couple minutes of a podcast are incredibly important. Like if you manage to get people past the first couple minutes of your podcast, they'll basically stick with you the whole way through. So when you're scripting a podcast, I think having really, really clear introductions is important. I don't, I personally don't think that every podcast can get away with doing a pre-roll. I think that's a personal choice. <laughs> I would personally like have a really strong introduction and then do an ad break and then go to the story. I think that's the most effective way, but it depends on who you are and how strong your brand is. How would you define a strong introduction? A strong introduction is a promise that you're making to the listener. So you are saying in this podcast, this is what you're going to get out of it. And this is why you should listen. And this is why I'm excited. So you have to communicate the why of a story right up front. I think a lot of podcasters forget that in a couple of different ways. One, they just race right into the interview. And I've been guilty of this too, where you just wanted people to get to the content and you don't set the stage because people are previewing podcasts as well. And I think people lose sight of that as well. But so many podcasts out there, sometimes if you are given a recommendation of a show, you'll probably listen. And you know, you, the, the longer you've been listening to the podcast, the better you are at listening to them at higher speeds sometimes. And I know that makes radio yeah. producers cringe when they... <laughs> you know, I heard that Ira Glass listens to podcasts yes. at 1.5 speed. So like, we can't make a side eye anymore. Outlining that early on, you know, one of the things I do is I always welcome new listeners. I always assume like I'm always going to find someone who's discovering my show for the very first time. So I'm like, if you're new to the show, you know, a couple of seconds describing, well, who am I and, and what the show is about, I think is always helpful. But I think to what you were saying, I think just, I think there's a sales maxim that I've heard in the past, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them <laughs> as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Never, ever take your listeners for granted because you don't know where you're reaching them. Yeah. I think the beginning of a podcast is super, super important. Um, word of mouth is still important in a podcast. So once you figured out, you know, why am I the person making this podcast? How is this different than all the other podcasts? You can sort of figure out where your podcast fits in the ecosystem of podcasts and make friends with people around you so you can cross promote and really grow your listener base that way. What are some of the things to the extent that you can talk about them that Google is working on to just either help with discoverability or just from a metric standpoint or anything feature wise to leverage the, you know, the brains <laughs> that are working at Google to, to just increase and improve the, the podcast experience? I think podcasts being available on Google search is a huge development for the industry. So if you think about it before, yeah. Nobody really ever listened to podcasts accidentally. Like 
to listen to a podcast, you have to know what a podcast is, you have to have the name of a podcast, and you have to know how to listen to the podcast. That is a huge barrier to entry. Whereas YouTube, people would just Google something and they'd be watching YouTube and they don't even know what YouTube is. They just know that they're watching entertaining content. So with podcasts being available in search, we hope that people who don't even know what a podcast is will access your content and that'll help spread the word. Another thing that makes Google Podcasts a little bit different is that we have algorithmic recommendations. So once you start listening to a podcast, you will get recommendations that say listeners of this podcast also like. So you can sort of see what people with your same interests are listening to. And I think that's a great way to discover new content. It's also very cool that on the homepage, we just launched Google Podcasts 2.0, and the homepage is sort of like a news feed that's organized by publish time. So even if it's a podcast that you subscribe to that you haven't thought about in a while, when they launch a new episode, you'll be alerted through that news feed, which I think is really cool, especially for podcasts that come out in seasons where it's like, maybe you forgot about this podcast, but it, it comes up and you're like, oh, I wonder what they're up to. What guidance would you give or is there anything that podcasters can do either podcast, you know, folks that have been podcasting for years or even just someone who's just now thinking about like their launch strategy and how they want to think about things like, you know, like you said, the intro or even writing show notes, you know, is there any best practices, tips for and guidance that you give podcasters in, in, in terms of things that they could be doing better? Yeah, I think clear communication is always important. I think sometimes people want to do sort of like punny titles and that's not super effective. Like you you really want to be straightforward with the listener because you have to think like, what are people searching for in terms of am I going to show up or not? So something that's really cool in the podcast app is that you can Google someone's, you can Google, you can search for someone's name. I really like the actress Anna Kendrick. And the other day I searched for her name, the Google podcast app. She doesn't have her own podcast, but it came up with a list of interviews that she had done. So that was really cool. So you have to make sure that in the show notes, you're saying who your guests are, what topics they're talking about so that people can find you. Do you think the, because you mentioned that, that, that the shows are being transcribed. So even though, in, and probably that's going to keep getting better and better, and maybe it's about 80 or 85% in terms of accuracy, but as a podcaster, is would it behoove them to actually get a manual transcription that's 100% accurate? Would it, be, would it be helpful to actually write show notes in, in case there are like names like that that are in there? Do those things help? Yeah, I think that definitely helps on the web and also for the accessibility reason. Like there are people who want to engage with your content who might be hard of hearing. So having, you know, using a service like Trent or Descript, there's so many services out there that do transcription, just giving it a double check and putting them on your website, I think is a great way to also help your website do better on Google search, which is another way that people can find you. It feels like once you get podcasters on a podcast about podcasting, it feels this feels like one of those rabbit hole conversations. <laughs> it's like I just want to like you know geek out on on podcasting. But what what has you excited, Brenda? When you when you think about you know the opportunity to work with within a company like Google and this cross section of this you know continued resurgence and interest in in podcasting, it feels like those two things together make for a really exciting environment. Yeah, I think it's a great time to be an audio professional. 
even during COVID, like the things that we do have largely been unaffected, which is amazing. Like you can tell an amazing, you can tell a riveting story with a microphone in your closet, right? So I do think that fiction podcasts might be more of a thing now that, you know, all these movie studios and production studios are closed. We'll see what happens. That's my sort of prediction. That's not based on anything except for my own hopes and desires. <laughs> I'm really excited about the Google Podcast Creators Program. So we're launching our second year. Applications open July 1st. And this year we're focusing on people who already have some podcast experience, maybe people who have already published a season of their podcast and they want to really take it to the next level. And what we'll do, it'll all be virtual, of course, this year. We don't know when we'll be able to fly people in from all over the world again, but we will pair you with mentors, with audio professionals who can really give you feedback and help you think about anything from your marketing strategy to your listener base, to how you get sponsorships. So I really would encourage your listeners, especially if they come, especially if they feel like they have stories to tell that haven't been told before that are underrepresented in the landscape right now, I would really encourage them to apply because it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, that's going to make bump up the, the release of this episode specifically oh, <laughs> because I, I want to make sure we get it out in time so people can take advantage of that. So we'll, I'll do some reshuffling. Yeah, and it's available yeah. to anyone all over the world. Good. A couple questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Fiction podcasts. <laughs> mm, okay. So Collaborate. Yeah, I used to really not like fiction podcasts because I thought like, oh, I'd rather watch a TV show. And I'm sort of want to give myself credit because I think that the best fiction podcasts really use the medium of audio really well. Like if you're making a fiction podcast and it could just as well be a book, it could just as well be a screenplay, it's probably like not the right medium, right? But if you listen to a podcast like Limetown, oh, it's so good because they really use the method of an RSS feed, the method, you know, the the idea that you maybe are listening to live radio, the the audience is the listeners like taking a part in this story. That's really amazing. And I do think as we as this virus limits the type of work that we can create together, fiction podcasts are going to be a way that we innovate. Is Google looking at opportunities to create projects internally as well? Yeah, Google is not going to do that. I don't think we do have some sort of like marketing podcasts, but that's something that we do with Gimlet and it's very much like external. So Google is all about helping publishers get to users. And we sort of feel like it's not our place to create content. It's not our area of expertise. And we would much rather be that facilitator, be that matchmaker and help publishers reach their audience. And there are also really interesting projects going on. There's something called the Google News Initiative, which is how Google supports innovation in the news industry generally. And there are always groups of people, publications, publishers who pitch like really interesting work in the audio space. That's another thing to look at, but that's more, that's more for people who are, who maybe like have a new site already or have a production studio or something. But yeah, the Google News Initiative is doing a lot to support the industry right now. Okay. I'll make sure we have links to that in the show notes as well. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? 
know. That's a really good question. What do people say? I don't know. I, I try to be an open book. I try to be pretty out there with how I feel about things. I really try to be mindful of my time and who I spend my time with. I say something to people that I mentor. I say, you have to protect your magic. So when you're, you know, you immediately know when someone sees your magic and when people don't see your magic and you really want to align yourself with people who see your magic. So I care more about who I'm working with than the specific project that I'm working on. I And that's taken some time in the industry to figure out. I'm always impressed and thankful and grateful for the, the wide range of answers I get when I ask that question. And that was probably one of the best ones I've heard oh, in a wow. while, protecting <laughs> your magic. So that was super awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So just lastly, where's the best place for folks to connect with you to learn more about some of the initiatives you mentioned as well? I hate saying this, but Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that works. I'm on Twitter 24-7. My handle is Brenda P. Salinas. I tweet a lot about the Google Podcast Creators Program, the GNI, stuff that Google is doing, as well as, you know, my own witty thoughts on the world. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, most of the time, I think my DMs are mostly open, so... Yeah, so we'll make sure we have links to that to, to that as well. Brenda, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I was looking forward to it. Did not disappoint, oh, thank especially you so much, around all things podcasting. And thank you for all the, the, the work you do as a Latina as well and in terms of like educating like that community in terms of like opportunities because I think it's important for people of color and Latinx like people growing up and understanding like all the opportunities that exist and, and the potential for the different types of careers you can have in audio, which I think is really inspirational. I think the world really does need to hear our stories. And in that vein, I hope that some of your listeners apply to the Google Podcast Creators Program. We really want to see their applications. Well, I'll make sure we, we stress that in, in the promotion of this episode as well. So thanks again for that opportunity. Thanks again to Brenda for that fantastic and insightful conversation, getting a sneak peek at what's happening in the world of Google, how they're handling podcasting, how they're taking a renewed interest in it, all the things we could be doing as a podcaster. There's some really great tips in there. So if you missed those, you might want to go back and take some notes. I know that I was taking notes as we were speaking, and I got more out of the podcast when I re-listened as well. So I appreciate Brenda for making the time and sharing her story. As a fellow Latina in podcasting, it's great to see some of the work that she's been doing to support that community as well. Tune in next week for my conversation with Jordan Paris. Astute listeners will realize that that's the episode I teased out previously, but because of the timing of some of the events we were promoting with Brenda's work at Google, we wanted to make sure we got this one out in time. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out his fantastic music catalog at cedarsoil.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Check out fullcast.co and sign up for a free consultation at fullcast.co forward slash chat15 for a free 15-minute chat to see how we can help you with your show. As always, special thanks to our sponsor, Focusrite, and the wonderful line of the Scarlet sound cards. Learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right if you made it this far you're listening for the retention hashtag let's go with google brenda hashtag google brenda that one's probably a no-brainer don't forget you can always leave a long overdue rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies thanks again for all you do to support the show my fellow listeners